welcome to another episode of The Central Lounge, brought to you by Global Stake, which is your institutional, truly decentralized bare metal staking service provider. And today, we're excited to have a wonderful guest on the show, uh, Houdi Hutan Rashidafar. Uh, Houdi is a former investor at Canaan Partners, and he's the founder of Hash3 Capital. Hash3 Capital is a seed stage crypto fund, which aims to support entrepreneurs building an open and permissionless future. Hash3 actively assists its portfolio companies and has already made investments in various promising crypto startups, such as Eigenlayer, uh, Ajna Abs, and Crossmint, and many more. Uh, the fund is known for its focus on the development of innovative infrastructure and middleware solutions for the crypto ecosystem. Uh, they have an exceptional LP base for reference. 30% are execs or co-founders of businesses that have successfully exited over that uh unicorn status that everyone uh, strives for, so that $1 billion and up, and in a number of cases, $10 billion plus for some of those companies. That 30% is responsible for generating over $3 trillion, and you heard that right, trillion, of aggregate enterprise value. So, Hootie, we are very excited to have you on today. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for having me. I'm super excited to chat today. Awesome. Awesome. Well, let's go on ahead and just get things kicked off. I'd love for you to kind of talk about your journey, your background, um, how you started in traditional finance, and then what was that catalyst moment that got you really interested in a cryptocurrency and what led all the way to founding of Hash3? Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I have a background before going into investing. I spent time uh, both on the operating side and I spent time right out of uh, college in investment banking. But I think when you first get into an investing role, especially in venture, you know, your job in some way is to research and understand new categories that can create a lot of value. Um, so when I joined my last fund, Canaan uh, Partners, um, I joined them in, in 2017 as an associate. And really, like my job was find new categories that other people aren't focusing on and categories that I think are interesting, categories that I think can create a lot of value and uh, categories that, you know, hopefully I'm personally passionate about. So I sort of picked a couple areas to uh, research, one of those being crypto. Um, and uh, the more I learned about crypto, uh, the more interested I became. Uh, obviously, I had heard about uh, Bitcoin uh, before then. I actually read the white paper in 2012. Um, but I never had been very active in the community because I was always at jobs that didn't really overlap uh, in the in the sector. Um, and so the more I read about it, uh, the more interested I became. And I really got interested with this idea of uh, ha having um, uh, a permissionless nature with everything that you're doing. And this sort of stems back to my parents and in, in particular, uh, my grandparents' relationship with my parents. My parents are Iranian immigrants. They came to the U.S. Um, they came here for education. And during that period of time, the Iranian revolution happened and their bank accounts were frozen and they were cut off from being supported from my grandparents. So, uh, and, and, and that was pretty impactful in my youth, right? So my, my parents obviously had to change the way that they spent money that impacted the way I grew up um, and, you know, sort of uh, our, our class and, and all that, that sort of stuff. Um, but it really sort of kicked off this uh, big distrust of financial institutions, starting with my dad in particular. But then, uh, uh, you know, he would that sort of by osmosis infused into my uh, worldview. And so when I the more I read about crypto and, you know, at the time in 2017, largely was centered around Bitcoin. Ethereum had just launched and there weren't really 
many real applications built on Ethereum. I was sort of fascinated by this concept of being able to do things around the internet and transfer value without having someone like a, a, a toll booth or a police station saying, hey, you can't do that, you can't do that. Um, I think in the U.S., we have a very robust financial infrastructure and system, and uh, we a lot of times take that for granted. But if you look at countries like Argentina, or if you look at company uh, countries like Iran, or if you look at countries like Russia, there is very much of the government um, wants to control the uh, or India, for example, the government wants to control currency and they want to control their currency base. And this comes to the detriment of their citizens. So I'll just use Iran as an example because I'm familiar with the numbers. Um, When my parents came to the U.S. from Iran in 1976, I believe, or 1975, uh, the exchange rate was seven tumans to one dollar. Okay. Currently, the official government exchange rate is thirty thousand tuman to one dollar. But you can't actually transact at that exchange rate. The black market exchange rate is one hundred and fifty thousand tuman to one dollar. So that means that people are so desperate for U.S. dollars that they're willing to pay five times the government rate. Uh, for U.S. dollars. So that just goes to show you how much value has been uh, inflated away over that period of time. So from 1975 to now is roughly a period of 50 years. Um, That's how much value you've gone, you know, what is that? 150,000 divided by seven is the multiples of value that have been inflated away. Um, And that's not even to mention your base currency being USD and USD is obviously inflated over that period of time as well. So, um, there's a lot of reasons why you might want uh, a, a decentralized currency. I mean, not only for a, a monetary policy perspective, but also just a transaction perspective. So anyway, that got me really interested. And then at the time, Ethereum had launched, so you had this sort of smart contract uh, infrastructure, which is even more interesting because now you could take um, digitized money and you could encode it and you can put it smart contracts around it. So you need even fewer tolls and policemen along the path of what you want to do. Um, And then from there, like the ecosystem became more and more vibrant. Um, So I spent uh, five years of my last fund focusing on crypto. I was a crypto focused person there. Um, And then uh, at some point over that period of time, um, I wanted to spend more time in crypto um, and I wanted to work with the best founders in the space. And I was fortunate enough to meet with uh, uh, two very well-known operators in the crypto space, uh, Surajit Chatterjee, who is the former CPO of Coinbase, and um, Ram Ramachandran, who's the founder of Router Protocol. And we came up with the thesis around Hash3. And you sort of talked uh, a bit about that at, at a high level, and that's exactly what we, we strive to do. We raised capital, 50% of that capital is from operators. And those operators are very well-known operators and they have built big businesses. Our goal is to ultimately help our founders build big businesses by leveraging the knowledge base from these operators. And those LPs are invested in that too. I mean, they're quite literally invested in the fund, but they're invested in that that thesis that we have uh, of bringing this knowledge base from operators to founders. Fascinating backstory. I didn't even realize that. Um, out of curiosity, and sort of continue on with Hash Three, what made you want to focus on it being a seed round based VC firm instead of all the other multiple stages that you could have chosen? 
Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I think there's uh, a couple of reasons why. One is crypto specifics. So um, especially if you're investing in protocols, typically protocols will raise maybe one or two rounds before having uh, a token generation event. And so, and, and by the way, rounds in crypto are less delineated than rounds in traditional uh, venture. So even then, like, a seed round can be a $30 million round in crypto. And while that is very abnormal in traditional venture, that is uh, more prevalent in, in crypto. So um, you just want to be at sort of the first round and the inception uh, because you might only have one other chance, um, um, maybe at most two other chances to get in before to- token generation. And we are our primary strategy and our primary uh, uh pitched LPs is that we are a uh, uh, private uh, vehicle. So we're investing largely in privates before they, you know, those tokens become liquid. The second reason is uh, I spent a lot of time investing at seed at my last fund. And that's sort of a stage that I really like because it's a stage where you, uh, a founder has a thesis and a founder has a mission and a founder has something that they believe should exist in this world And at some level, you are believing their vision and you're sort of joining them on this mission. And this is a mission that not many people know about. This is a mission that not many people believe in. And you get this sort of lens into the future. You sort of like get, you know, like a telescope, like you're looking out to see and you get to like see all of these different future worlds that all these founders believe in. And then like as you're venturing out to see, like it becomes more and more real. Like sometimes that doesn't work out. Like not every company uh, achieves their mission. They might go do a few experiments and those experiments don't work. But like being at that outset and like looking through that telescope is like, it is just like um, something that I really like. It's like, oh yeah. Like when my friends tell me like, hey, have you heard of this company? I'm like, yeah, I actually met with that founder when they were like, (laughs) you know, two co-founders and had nothing. And it's like really cool to be like, yeah, I was kind of like there at the inception. Um, so it's just sort of one, a personal preference, and two, I think a function of uh, the crypto vertical specifically. Um, it just fits nicely there. Interesting. I mean, it's 100% true because I've known you now for about a year and a half, and you've always been one of the most plugged in people I've ever talked to in this space. You seem to know everyone. Um, but so going back on your story with your parents immigrating from Iran, I'm kind of curious, fast forwarding to today, as you're looking at decentralized finance in general. Um, I'm assuming you carry a lot of um, that kind of lens when you're looking to invest in certain companies, I guess. So the root of my question would be a lot of the people I talk to in the space uh, seem to hammer home like first world or uh, capitalistic societies and then second world, basically communist societies. People are always saying back and forth, this is going to change the world primarily in a capitalistic society first before it expands to other countries. Um, I don't know. What's your thought process on even skipping over first, second, third world, all the above of this being like a true way to democratize currency in general stores of value for everyone on a global scale, no matter where they live. Yeah, that's that's the ultimate hope. Right. Um, And I think actually the problem set is uh, is uh, more critical in. Call it societies or countries that there isn't a lot of trust in their, in their government or in their financial infrastructure. Uh, so, you know, products like DeFi or products like even as simple as um, uh, international payments, right? A lot of times if you are transferring money from Europe to Africa, you, you could be paying egregious rates 
to get that money across those borders. Um, and with crypto, you could do that for, you know, probably like 95 or 97% cheaper. Um, and so my belief is that these products, and I think, I do think DeFi is a little bit more mature than sort of call it web 3.0 or, uh, decentralized applications. Um, I, I think that DeFi is probably going to be embedded in, in a lot of these products going forward and whether you know it or not, and there's a lot of infrastructure being built around this to make it easier, right? Like embedded wallets and, uh, you know, you don't really have to know what a seed phrase is and you don't really need to know that it's uh, stable coins underneath. It could just show you a representation of the currency, but actually the, underneath the transfer rails are, are, are crypto. There's a bunch of great companies. I mean, Circle's doing really great work around this, but um, I think that those embedded solutions are going to proliferate and it maybe it hits the U.S. first because it can be integrated better in the U.S., uh, maybe from a regulatory perspective, uh, even though they're they're fairly hostile now, I think if it's behind a KYC wall and it is like institution led, um, I think they'll they'll be okay with it. But uh, uh, it it probably makes more like financial sense in terms of like efficiency gains in uh, call it markets that have lower financial uh, infrastructure trust. I would say. Great answer. Um, so then as you're looking to invest in certain companies and projects, what sort of um, projects per se in the DeFi space or just in the Web3 space in general or the types of founders do you personally look to to work with? Are there certain attributes that kind of stick out? Yeah, um, I think it depends on the project. I think in general, we, uh, you know, I've sort of published a piece on this. We look for missionaries versus mercenaries. Um, so people who are really driven and want to see a world where something exists. Maybe there's a personal reason why they want that thing to exist. Maybe they're, um, you know, there's just a, 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 a devoted drive that they have to see this thing exist, as opposed to a mercenary who's like, hey, I think this can make a lot of money and I want to go build this for the sake of making money. Um, I think you know, the, the people that are missionaries, like money will follow if they execute their mission. Um uh, and obviously we, we want to join them and it's not like we want to join them to make money is like, oftentimes I just get enamored with the vision that they want. And they, they are just so devoted to this idea and they're so dead set on, this is going to be the worldview that you just want to join someone on that journey and say, Hey, I was, I was with them from day one. And we, you know, I, I witnessed them like build this thing, uh, from there and like build, build that mission out and they got their community together and everyone was following them and, and, and working alongside them. Um, but I think it depends on, on what's being built, right? I think if something is more of a novel idea, so let's say it hasn't been built yet, you kind of need a little bit of a different founder uh, to build that. They're more of, uh, they need to be more of that spokesperson. They need to be able to storytell. They need to be able to get people to believe in this crazy vision that they have, this crazy novel idea. So you know, for DeFi in particular, maybe it's a new product or maybe it's a, uh, a new way of wrapping these products. Um, but if it's sort of a um, more of a efficiency gain or more of an iteration on a prior DeFi concept, maybe you want a founder that um, is more plugged into the go to market channels and can uh, say, hey, I know what the existing products are out there now. And I know that we are a 
call it 90% efficiency gain in some regard. Maybe it's gas costs or maybe it's LP rewards or maybe it's reducing MEV or whatever it is. And we can go out and we all, I know all the BD people at all the major distribution channels and I can get plugged in and overnight we're going to have, you know, hundred million of TVL first week and then a billion of TVL after a couple months. Right. And so I think it depends on what the product is ultimately in terms of like this, the, um, uh, the superpower that the founder has, but ideally you're sort of trying to align the founder's superpower with what, you know, what the, the major risk that's inherent in that project. Understood. Understood. So then as you're meeting with various different types of companies that are obviously pitching you to invest in them, um, the root question I have here would be general investors, institutional investors that are just uh, investing in, let's say, the actual coins or tokens themselves. Um, There's a lot of emerging trends that are kind of grabbing people's attention, like artificial intelligence, for instance. Everybody seems to be looking for the next AI cryptocurrency per se. But are there any emerging trends that you believe financial or not financial, but institutional investors should really be aware of other than the buzzword AI uh, going into the next bull run. Yeah. So um, I have, I have an opinion on these like hype cycle trends. And um, I think in general, like if I'm not invested in a category before the, you know, a hype cycle comes around, I typically like won't really touch that category. Um, you know, in, in general, like you, you want to be invested in these categories before that they become popular and before they sort of run up in that, in that capacity. Um, and so I think like, you know, AI is a particularly hypey um, bubble right now. Um, but in terms of other areas, like I think most institutional investors, honestly, they want to see real value. They want to see real use cases. Um, I think the AI slash crypto stuff is really a fun narrative for crypto native people to throw around and say, oh, this is going to be the next big thing. And it might be. I'm not saying that it's not. Um, I think like similarly, the metaverse was a really interesting like narrative that uh, uh, crypto native people threw around and said, hey, this is going to be the next big thing. But I think institutional investors like LPs, they want to see real use cases. They I think the the metaverse is like a nice beta for them, but they're like, what is crypto going to be used for? And I think that uh, the primary use case, like stablecoin transfer is like probably the nearest term uh, be, bringing real world assets on cha- chain, bringing yield on chain. You could imagine a world where all of the idle cash in every single bank account is, can be invested in a treasury, right? You, you actually like the steps in order to do that is quite cumbersome right now. You might have, $10,000 in sitting in your checking account. And like, are you actually going to go like put that in treasuries? No, because you know, you, you want to go buy something with a debit card and you have to like sell treasuries to go get it. Like that doesn't really make sense, but with smart contracts and with on-chain treasuries, you could actually build that product quite easily. Like that, it's actually not that hard. Um, you could have your checking account constantly getting any type of yield. You could have your checking account invested in a REIT for all you care about. And then every time you swipe your, you want to go buy a cup of coffee, it just sells $5 of that REIT and it's automatic and then pays your debit card. Right. So like these are, and that's just only an isolated use case where it's just like your thing, right. That's obviously would be embedded in your bank account, but there are so many use cases of like transfers. So like all, you know, payment processors take 3% of 
all dollars. Like that's a huge amount of value that can be unlocked. International transfers, even higher. Like exchange rates, even higher. Like so these are like real use cases that like are like not as sexy as AI slash crypto and not as sexy as the metaverse, but there are like real efficiency gains. And because you have, you now have money in a digitized and, uh, um, and uh, encodable way, uh, you can unlock a ton of value in the space. And like, honestly, like that's what LPs care about. They like, they don't really care about like AI slash crypto. I have a question, Hootie. Um, Thinking about what you just said with RWAs and everything else, and that seems like that would be the one that institutions would just gravitate toward because at scale, it's going to produce significant returns, even if those are just marginal, you know, little bits here and there. But at for your personal perspective, or maybe even just Hashree as a group, what is the one, like if you're just dreaming and you could have anything that you feel would be something that could be a great use case for blockchain and crypto that you feel hasn't emerged yet, like just putting on your imagination cap, like what would be the one thing that you really feel or maybe the hash three group really thinks is missing from the space that could be done and maybe we're just close to, but ha- no one's actually like found the the way to build this particular thing yet. Yeah, I think that it's it's actually an extension of that RWA, right? So like what, what I just said was like, okay, like let's have like treasuries on chain. So treasuries are fungible, and you could just represent those as a ERC-20 token or any token for that matter. Um, but it, the extension of that is bringing non-fungible items on chain. And I'm not talking about like your animal picture, profile picture. I'm talking about your car title, your house, mor- your mortgage, your house deed, like all these things that are big high value items. You can bring them on chain and represent them. These are, there, there are f- so many non-fungible items that people don't don't even think about that um, there are barriers to getting liquidity on these things. So if you could bring all those on chain, like we could see, like you could see all of Hootie's, uh, uh, obviously this needs to be privacy encapsulated, but I could go take all of Hootie's assets, go to uh, a DeFi protocol and get a loan on it or get liquidity on it or do what, whatever I needed to do with uh, with those NFTs and those NFTs are a virtual representation. Now, I think there's a lot of things that need to exist before we get there. So that's why we're not there yet. Um, like, for example, like, you know, your, your house title, you need to like break down this archaic uh, titling agency that exists and all this other stuff that exists in the U S um, or for um, any other representation. Like you need a way to bring like, the, the real world asset and bring it on chain and verify it that it's correct. But once it's there, it's going to be the same as a going to a basketball game and there's a ticket on your phone. That ticket could be represented as an NFT. It, it's going to become as seamless as that. And once we get there, once, once you can um, write code around all of these assets, the amount of unlocked liquidity is going to be massive. That's a valid point. There's a ton of things that people own but they don't have access to the liquidity of the, the equity. That's, that's a point I haven't heard anybody mention. Um, Hootie, really appreciate having you on today. For those that have been listening, institutional investors, builders, et cetera, that are in the space that want to reach out to you, what's the best way for people to, to network with you and get in contact? Yeah, uh, the best way is you can reach out on Twitter. I'm at Hootie underscore R. You can reach out via email. Uh, it's Hootie at hash3.xyz. Yeah. 
Awesome. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Fascinating insights. Love learning about your background and your history. Uh, I'm looking forward to continue to see what Hash3 does going into 2024. Thanks, guys.